And now let's try and tune in to no good music from an undisclosed location somewhere in New Jersey. That style, playing guitar. When that comes on, you're out on the dance floor. Miami still rocks, man. Am I going to listen to this again? And that's definitely going to be a theme. (laughs) (laughs) You can't make this shit up. No. Hello, everybody. This is Rob. And Jeremy. And we are on show 48. If anyone cares. (laughs) One less than 49. (laughs) One more than 47. (laughs) (laughs) And today, our main topic uh, is basically, we're going to talk about the history of music videos, and we also are going to review a movie from, was it 1988? 88, yep. Called Tape Heads. So I don't know if anyone's heard of that movie. It was um, John Cusack and Tim Robbins starring that movie. Academy Award winning performances. Oh, it was an incredible movie. <laughs> and uh, But we have a couple things before we get to that. We are going to talk about, oh, we're going to go over a top 10 list from uh, the week ending August 1st, 1981. And also the reason being 1981 is, and August is, that's when MTV began in August of 81. Mm-hmm. So we're going to start with that. And I'm going to start it off. And uh, on the top 10, number 10 song that week was Queen of Heart by Juice Newton. <laughs> now I remember... I love this song, I have to say. I had the 45. I think it's it's a fun song. Um, kind of a country. I think her voice has a country, like, twang to it. Mm-hmm, for sure. I was always, in, I think, intrigued by her. Like, I never heard of someone named Juice before. Right. I mean, her real name is Judith, by the way. Mm-hmm. Now, the song is considered a pop country song. And the song was written by Hank DeVito. He was the pedal steel guitarist for Emmylou Harris, her backing band, and it was first recorded in 1979 by Dave Edmonds for his album, Repeat When Necessary. But the most successful version was Juice Newton's version, and her version reached number two in the United States. And... She would later recall, I did Queen of Hearts live for about a year. Then I brought it to producer Richard Landis when we started the Juice album. He wasn't convinced at that point that it was a breakout song, but I told him, I think this is a really cool song. So we cut it. I love towards the end of the song where it's just the drum beat and her voice. Mm -hmm. It kind of breaks down to that and then goes back. But, uh... So that was number 10, Queen of Hearts. We got number 9, Hearts, (laughs) by Marty Ballin. 
And oh, and there is a theme to this top ten, which I figured out. There's a lot of what I consider yacht rock. Yeah, songs. I was gonna say I noticed the theme too. Yeah. So this song has really everything you need for a yacht rock song. It's got a steady drum beat, good harmonies. It kind of reminds me of "I Just Called to Say I Love You" by Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. I can see the that. Door. That are the doorbell. I don't know. Um, but this song's about a former lover who he still thinks about and wonders if she still thinks of him. Uh, one lyric goes, will you want me back again or have you found yourself a new lover? And it's one of those songs where the, the singer has to tell you that they've written a song. <laughs> like I've written, is everything okay? I just thought I'd write a song to tell the world. Mm. Yeah, we're listening to the song. We know you wrote a song. Um, and I also thought the last verse, when his voice gets really strong, he kind of sounds like Steve Perry ah. from Journey. Now, the song was written by Jesse Barish. He wrote Count on Me for Jefferson Starship. Mm-hmm. And Marty Ballin, the singer, was one of the founders of Jefferson Starship. Right. Now, this was his third single in 19 years. His first two singles were unsuccessful that he released in 1962. Wow. 19 years earlier. And (laughs) this was his biggest single. It reached number eight. So next we have The Boy from New York City. (laughs) (laughs) I also remember the song, The Manhattan Transfer. It has a doo-wop kind of sound to it. For sure. Even before Billy Joel, you know, was bringing back Do Up. It's a fun song. It's got some goofy lyrics, though. Now, I always thought they were singing Ooh-Wah, Ooh-Wah, Boo-Boo Kitty. <laughs> yeah, I always thought it was something different, too. Probably because of Laverne and Shirley. Because they had, a, I don't know, I think um, Shirley had a cat, mm-hmm. a stuffed cat called Boo-Boo Kitty. <laughs> oh, okay. But it's Ooh-Wah, Ooh-Wah, Cool, cool kitty. And then there's a guy with a deep voice just every once in a while going, yeah. (laughs) That was his only job. Yeah. And this is the first time I heard the term mohair. Mohair suit. I still don't know what it is. I believe Elton John says that too in uh, Rocket Man, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. I guess that was popular in the, (laughs) maybe in the 70s. Yeah. Also, there's a term in here that I've never heard before. Dueling scar. Yeah. Says, and he's cute in his mohair suit, and he keeps his pockets full, spending loot. Ooh-wee. Say you ought to come and see his dueling scar and brand new car. Yeah. Okay. Women like scars. Absolutely. And Uh, brand new cars. Now, I didn't own the 45 of this, because at this point, I think I'd already taken down my Barry Manilow posters, and I was starting (laughs) to get into rock music. That song was, uh, the song was originally recorded in 1964 by the AdLibs. Uh, the song was covered by a band called Darts in 1978. And then Manhattan Transfer, of course, in 1981. The Darts version peaked at number two in the UK. And then Manhattan Transfer's version peaked at number seven on US Billboard Hot 100. Yeah, it's funny. Of the three songs you've stated so far, some of the information about, mm-hmm. two of them had ties to the 60s. 
I yeah. told you without knowing any of this data yesterday that I felt like a lot of these songs had a 60s feel. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's just interesting. Like they had been pre-recorded. Yeah. Before. It didn't feel like an 80s list just listening mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. There's one song I think that felt like 80s and we'll get to it. That's Now Jeremy, I know you're a big wrestling fan. I am. Now they have ties to wrestling. Oh yeah. This song does. This song. This song was used by pro wrestler Boogie Woogie Man. Okay. Jimmy Valiant. Yeah, I know as who his that is. theme music during his, his tenure with Jim Crockett Promotions in the 1980s. Nice. Yeah. Now, of course, I didn't see Jimmy Valiant wrestle, but yeah. I knew him as a manager. Okay. As he got older. Yeah. <laughs> growing up. So number seven, we got Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes. This is the song that I have a story to tell you about. And I also, I also like this song. Yes, it's a good song. And she has a unique voice, you know, raspy. Um, but I like this song when it came out. And I'm not sure why. I, I, I also, I knew who Betty Davis was, of course. But I was also in the old movies, so mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, but I, was, I found, I always found this song mesmerizing with the the first keyboard notes and then and then there's like these sounds like whips in the song you know i'm sure it's a keyboard or synthesized sound now the producer of this song had an assistant go out and buy the cheapest and cheapest sounding drum machine for the song <laughs> and combined with the sound of an early synthesizer called a sequential circuits profit 5 they found the sound they were looking for, and of course the song became a hit. Mm-hmm. Now, Karns credits her keyboard player, Bill Como, for making significant contributions to the chord changes and arrangement, and the song was recorded in one take, too. Wow, that's yeah. impressive. Now, the song was written and composed by Donna Weiss and Jackie DeShannon in 1974, and it was recorded by DeShannon that year. Um, but Kim Carnes made it popular. It spent nine con- non-consecutive weeks at the top of the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. It won the 1981 Grammy Award for Song of the Year wow. and Record of the Year. And then actress Betty Davis was 73 when the song came out. <laughs> and she wrote a letter to Kim Carnes and to Shannon thanking them for making her a part of modern times. And said that her grandson now looked up to her. (laughs) (laughs) And then after they won the Grammys, she sent them roses. So that was very nice. That is nice. Can you imagine your um, grandson? I mean, your grandmother's Betty Davis, but I don't know how young he was at the the time. Right. But then he looked up to her. Yeah. Because she was in a song. (laughs) Nice. Okay. We got number six. Oh, so real quick. Oh, yeah. I, um... That song, when I was in college, I went out to karaoke quite often with a group of friends. Mm -hmm. And I had met this new lady friend, I guess you could call her, and I invited her out to karaoke. Uh So she was like, oh, okay. And she was scared to death to sing, but she's like, I gotta sing. And I had to be in my early to mid-20s, and she was definitely, I'd say, five, six years younger than me. So we all kind of had our go-to songs, and we were all... Wait, so she was 15? <laughs> I was. <laughs> you said she was five, six younger years younger? Yeah, I want to say I was like 24, so she was probably like okay. 18 or 19. I thought you were taking some 14-year-old to... No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, we, were, we had a group of 
singers that consistently went out and we were were pretty good. So she was like that much more intimidated. Mm-hmm. And she gets up and she sings Betty Davis eyes. Uh-huh. And she was really good. Wow. And everybody at the table was like, holy crap, we haven't heard this song in forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it was just such a random song to break out. Yeah. And she did it well. So we had a lot of fun with that. And it became kind of a regular <laughs> song in the rotation moving forward. Okay. So that was my funny did story. Did she do that? Did she go out again? Yeah, she did. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, she obviously liked the song and felt yeah. comfortable. Yeah, it was it. just so funny that of all songs, like that was the one oh, yeah. she pulled out because <laughs> so many people their first time they go with like something super popular, yeah. you know, like a queen or mm-hmm. journey, something that you hear all the time. Yeah. <laughs> that was not a song that I would consider you hear all the time. Yeah. So we had number six, uh, Slow Hand, the Pointer Sisters. I'm not real crazy about the song. Me either. Cause I, and I love the Pointer Sisters. Yeah. I think of Automatic or okay. you know, Jump for Your Love. Yeah. That type of stuff. And this just... Whew. Or Fire when they did that song. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of great songs, but this one just... I don't know. I've heard it before. This wasn't yeah. my first time hearing it, but it, not one of my favorites by them. And I think this could be a Yacht Rock song. Mm-hmm. And the song is not, believe it or not, about Eric Clapton. Because, you know, Eric Clapton went by the name of Slowhand. (laughs) That's my joke. (laughs) So, Anita Pointer says she's looking in the song for a man with a slow hand and easy touch. Someone who will not come and go in a heated rush. And that's not a term you hear often, heated rush. This was off their eighth studio album, Black and White. The song was written by Michael Clark and John Bettis and was recorded by... The Planet label in May 1981, and it was the lead single off that album. Now, the Pointer Sisters... Uh, Did a lot of pointing. Yeah. Although it, uh, the song it has a sultry style to it, the Pointer Sisters' first American Top Ten hit... Pointer Sisters wants you to get to the point. Originally, the song was not written for the group, and in fact, John Bettis states that the Pointer Sisters were the furthest act from the composer's minds for this song. That makes sense. However, producer Richard Perry said he knew Slowhand would be an instant smash hit that would recapitulate and expand on the intimacy of their previous hit, Fire. Like Fire, which also featured Anita Pointer on lead, Slowhand peaked at number two on the Billboard Top, on the Billboard Hot 100 for three weeks, right behind Endless Love by Diana Ross. And Lionel Richie. And that song's not on this list, by the way. No. So you're up, Jeremy. Oh, I don't have the list in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) We have Elvira, uh, number five by the Oak Ridge Boys. That's right. So so what are your thoughts on... Elvira. (laughs) (laughs) I I saw the song on the list, and my first thought was... Because I I looked at the list before I actually listened to it, and I knew instantly six of the songs without even Mm -hmm. turning them on. This was not one that I thought I knew, but I was like, what what is this going to be? And you got that kind of country, folky, like, oldies feel with this song. And it was, it's it's easy to get into because it's kind of peppy, but it's also, Mm -hmm. like, goofy, I guess you could say. Yeah. So it's... It's not a song that I'll go to all the time, but if it comes on periodically, I can tolerate it. Yeah. I guess that's a safe way of putting it. I want to say this is the worst song ever written. (laughs) 
Now, I, I know this song because my mom liked country music. Mm-hmm. And I knew who the Oak Ridge Boys were. But what's strange is a couple weeks ago, I think it was on TikTok. You know, you can scroll through, not necessarily people you're following, but things that come up. And it was the Oak Ridge Boys. And it was recent. Mm-hmm. And they're doing this song even before we picked this list. Right. And I hadn't heard that song since it came out. <laughs> you know, this song was wiped from my memory yeah. until then. Yeah. This is definitely the first time I've heard this song in years. And as soon as yeah. it started, though, I was like, oh, I know this one. <laughs> <laughs> but this song is strange, and it's, I don't know, any song that has, like, giddy up in it and um papa, um papa, mau mau, that can't be a good song. <laughs> and this song actually... It, this song goes on three minutes and 40 seconds too long. Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? The song is three, four. Yeah. <laughs> no, I understand. I yeah. got the joke. You're good. Now, the song was originally written and recorded by Dallas Frazier in 1966. Here's another, another one. Another 60s. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Oak Ridge Boys, uh, they were fans of Rodney Crowell's version of Elvira. And I don't think they're talking about the Mistress of the Dark. Hmm? I don't think they're no. talking about the mistress. Of no, the not Elvira, the mistress. <laughs> the one guy in the band, Dwayne Allen, said, we wanted Elvira to be a summer record for families of four. Mom singing the verses, the ki- kids singing the giddy up. <laughs> and dad comes in with the oom um papa chorus. It's the best planning we ever did. Now, the song did peak at number five. Yeah. It was certified platinum for sales of two million units. Wow. And uh, it was a distinction for a country song. For years, it shared only with Islands in the Stream by Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. Interesting. I don't know. It's, it's a really bad song. <laughs> Show, do you have anything else or should we move it on? It also has four? O Silver Away. So I don't <laughs> recommend listening to that. Because it's also a song you may not be able to get out of your head for a while. This is true. Know? And number four, we have I Don't Need You by Kenny Rogers. That's the one. I didn't know this song at all. And that's a shame because I like Kenny Rogers. Mm-hmm. Um, I like a lot of his music. This one didn't really do anything for me. I don't know that I'd go back and yeah. go out of my way to listen to it again, in all honesty. I've never heard this song. My mom was a big Kenny Rogers fan, but I just never heard this song. And like we talked about before is that I think he was so famous that he put out an album and a single and it just went on the top 10. Yeah. And you know, it's in sort of what Taylor Swift is doing now. She's so popular that her last album, all 22 songs were on the top 40. Yeah. So this is what was happening in, you know, 81 too. And this was another country song that made the list. Yeah. It, it This had a lot of country feel to it. And a lot of 60s feel. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't get 80s out of this list. It, I don't know, it's weird. Well, it was first recorded and released as a single in 1978 by Rick Christian, but it failed to make the charts. And this was on Kenny's 11th album. So, Kenny, of course, had collaborated with Lionel Richie in 1980 with the song Lady. Mm-hmm. And after the success of that record, Rogers asked Richie to produce his next album, and that was this album. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. 
Uh, although the original plan was for Lionel Richie to write all the songs for his album, the two men agreed to accept songs they both liked for the project, which had been written by other people. Mm -hmm. And I Don't Need You was one of the, those songs. Uh, and Kenny has been quoted uh, describing I Don't Need You as still to this day one of my favorite songs. Mm -hmm. And he says, I don't think I ever met Rick Christian, the guy who wrote it. Right. Of course. And he never will meet him because Kenny's no longer here. No. But the song spent uh, two weeks at number three on Billboard and went to number one on the country charts. Wow. So, the power of Kenny. Yeah. Number three. Believe it or not. This brings back a lot of memories. The theme from The Greatest American Hero, yeah. Believe It or Not. Yeah. Now, I'm Jeremy, you're your too thunder. young to know this TV show. I don't know the TV show, <laughs> but I know this song referenced yes. in another way. Yeah. I'm going to steal your thunder. Okay. I? That's okay. It, it, we'll, Seinfeld? Yes. <laughs> this was my ringtone for a while. George is, yeah. believe it or not, George isn't at home. Yeah. <laughs> So if no one uh, knows this song, it was, yeah, it was used on an episode of Seinfeld. It was on George's answering machine. Yes. It was, it was believe it or not, George isn't at home. Please leave a message at the beep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I must be out or I'd pick up the phone. And it was in the episode, The Susie. Yeah, he's, that's the episode where he's got this smoking hot girlfriend who's trying to break up with him, mm -hmm. but he's avoiding her so that she can't break up with him yeah. <laughs> because he wants to take her to a ball or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know this song from, the, there was a TV show called Greatest American Hero, and it was kind of a silly show. The main character uh, is given a special suit that's actually given to him by aliens. <laughs> And then he's instructed to join with the FBI to fight crime. Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah. It's a fun song. I don't think, I really don't think you can get tired of it. Maybe you can, but, um, you know, if this song comes on, I don't think it comes on Yacht Rock radio, but, <laughs> you know, I might listen to it. I mean, like I said, I... I only know that I knew the song from the TV show, but the TV show, the song is not, it's an actual song. It goes on for three minutes and 13 seconds. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more to the song than, you know, just the TV theme. Right. Now the song was composed by Mike Post. He wrote a lot of TV theme. He wrote the theme for the A-Team, mm -hmm. Quantum Leap, mm -hmm. and Hill Street Blues. The lyrics were written by Stephen Geyer, and it was sung by singer Joey Scarberry. This song was also included on Scarberry's 1981 debut album called American, America's Greatest Hero. Mm -hmm. It entered the top 40 of Billboard Hot 100 on June 13th, 1981, and it peaked at number two. But it was kept off the top spot by Endless Love <laughs> by Diana Ross and Lionel Richie. Yeah. So Lionel Richie was, you know, he's writing songs for Kenny, recording with Diana. He was very big at this time period. Oh, yeah. But it spent a total of 18 weeks in the top 40. Also, this song, speaking of, uh, we mentioned Seinfeld, uh, as a tribute to the episode, 
The song also appeared in a 2021 TV commercial for Tide that aired during CBS's telecast of Super Bowl. Oh, was that no. the was that the Costanza commercial? Yeah. Okay. So it aired during the Super Bowl on February 7th, 2021, and it starred Jason Alexander. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> and then you never saw the commercial again after that. But I guess the original song was in the, which is cool because, you know, it wasn't the right. George's Answering Machine right. song. Number two was an air supply song. I know that. We have, of course, 1981 couldn't be complete without air supply. <laughs> the one that you love. There you go. Not my favorite song by them. I like Air Supply a lot. And I, yeah. I, I played several of their CDs. I won't say I bought them. I actually downloaded them illegally back in the day on like Napster. Oh, okay. So I had a few burned copies. But um, yeah, this, this wasn't one that I, you know, would go back and play over and over again. Like uh, an I'm all out of love or, mm -hmm. you know, making love out of nothing at all. Something like that. <laughs> Just, I don't know. I knew this. I know the song. I don't, I don't want to say it's a bad song. It's just not one of my personal favorites. Yeah. Now, I think I actually, I wasn't sure if it had this album. I know it had one or two Air Supply albums. But I remember this album had a hot air balloon on the cover. Okay. And I know for sure I had this album. <laughs> I thought I had been all Air Supplied out by that time. Yeah. But I wasn't. Now, this is from their sixth studio album. Now... We mentioned in a past podcast, they must have been on another top 10 or something, that every one of their albums has a song with the word love in it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, this was written by Graham Russell, who I think he's one of the, yeah, he's one of the singers. Song reached number one in the US. It is the duo's only number one hit, believe it or not. Yeah. The song's lead vocals are sung by Russell Hitchcock. So we have Graham Russell and Russell Hitchcock. So there you go, Air Supply. And number one. The only song that felt like a real 80s song on the list. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Rick, it's... Rick Springfield, Jesse's Girl. Jesse's Girl, yeah. Rick Springfield. Yeah. It's, it's a great song. I always like this song. This is one of those, it's been played a million times, but I still yeah. don't get sick of it. Mm -hmm. It's just got a great beat. It's got great lyrics, great vocals, energy. It's, yeah. It's got everything you want in a song. Because I'm pretty sure we can call Rick Springfield a one-hit wonder because he never had the success of this song. No. This song was huge. Still uh, is. I mean, you could still yeah. hear it on the radio. Now, his other song... Um, I think it was from this out, was I've Done Everything For You. Okay. I like that. But that, of course, didn't... I don't even think that made the top ten. Now, this was uh, off his fifth album, Working Class Dog. And that album, and I remember the next one, it was the same dog. That was his dog. <laughs> it was... The next one, he was in a limo, like he was a limo driver. This one, he had, a, like, a dress shirt on and a tie. Mm -hmm. Um so this song's about a guy who is jealous of his friend who has a hot girlfriend, and he pretty much much wants to steal her from Jesse. He's a creeper. <laughs> yeah, He's watching with those eyes. <laughs> so believe it or not, believe it or not, <laughs> the song had a slow. It was slow to break out on the um, you know the top ten. It debuted 
on Billboard's Hot 100 on March 28th. It took 19 weeks to reach number one. Wow. Uh, which was August 1st. It remained in that position for two weeks, and it would be his only number one hit. Yeah. And the song was number one when MTV launched on August 1st, 1981. And Billboard ranked it as number five for all of 1981. Wow. Impressive. Now, a little background on Jesse's Girl. Maybe you've heard it. I don't know. Like, I've heard different stories, but this is the most, this is the story. Rick Springfield was taking a stained glass class. And also in the class were a friend of his named Gary and Gary's girlfriend. And Springfield initially wanted to use the actual name of his friend, but instead decided to go with a different name. So he chose Jesse instead of Gary because he was wearing a t-shirt with the name of football player Ron Jesse on it. Interesting. Now, Springfield says that he does not remember the name of the girlfriend, and he believes that the real woman who inspired the song has no idea that she was Jesse's girl. <laughs> What's weird about this is he, it sounds like he lost touch with this guy, Gary, because wouldn't Gary know the girl's name? Right. Or wouldn't the girl know yeah. Gary? <laughs> <laughs> He told Oprah Winfrey when he was interviewed, I was never really introduced to her. It was always just like panting from afar. Mm. <laughs> That's what he said. He also told song facts that Oprah's people tried to find her. And they got as far back as finding out that the teacher of the class had died two years previously. And that his class records were thrown out one year after his death. Otherwise, he might have been able to find out her name. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. But still, the question is, Gary, isn't that the link? Yeah. Isn't Gary the guy who's going to... Unless Gary died, maybe. Yeah. What happened to Gary? We need to find out. I don't know. But instead of trying to find yeah. a woman like that, maybe he should have tried to find another hit like that. Yeah, he should have. <laughs> and I see him a lot now uh, with Sammy Hagar. Yeah. Good friends. He just gave Sammy a guitar. So in 2006, the song was named number 20 on VH1's 100 Greatest Songs of the 80s. That's pretty cool. Number 20, so that's pretty good. So there's your top 10, August 1st, 1981. Next up, we are going to go into what we always do is albums that are turning 50 years old, 40. And I do have a couple of 30-year albums. Worth because recognizing. They're Yes, they're very uh, noteworthy. All right. I'm excited for those because I'm 36. <laughs> so I should know these 30-year-old albums. Okay, so we have albums that are turning 50 years old. Happy birthday. And I was, well, I won't say how old. Well, you know how old I was. Very young. They say it's your birthday. <laughs> so I'd like to start off with a little news from, this is from September 1973. Mm -hmm. September 20th, sadly, Jim Croce, Maury, Muleisen, and four others die in a plane crash in Louisiana. Mm, awful. Yeah. Uh, September 23rd, 73, the Roxy Theater opens in West Hollywood, California. Oh, that's exciting. 
And is that one still open? I think it is. I just looked it up. Okay. Yeah. September 27th, Don Kirshner's rock concert premiered on syndicated television in the United States. And the first performance was the Rolling Stones. The show did actually end in 1981. Wow. Which we just talked about. Interesting. <laughs> okay. So we have some albums. Some of these, it's weird because there's no release date. They just know the month. Mm -hmm. Like, how can you not know when the album came out? But So this is in September 73. We've got Cass Elliott, Mama Cass from the Mamas and the Papas. Mm -hmm. She had an album called Don't Call Me Mama Anymore. Oh. And this is a live album and the third album she released. But after the disappointment with her first two albums for RCA, uh, she felt that it was time for her to make some changes with her musical career. So she hired Alan Carr. Now, Alan Carr is known for the movie Grease. Right. He was the producer. She hired him as her manager. And at the time, he managed the careers of Tony Curtis and Margaret and Peter Sellers. And he felt that she needed to leave pop and rock music altogether and head into the cabaret circuit. Mm. <laughs> so a show was put together that consisted of old standards along with a few new songs uh, written for her by friends. The act included her along with two male singers who served as... Stomach. Who, <laughs> <laughs> who served as stomach. <laughs> <laughs> who served as backing singers and sidekicks during the musical numbers. So the album was recorded live over a series of nights at the famed Mr. Kelly's in Chicago. And it turned out to be the last album she released during her lifetime. Oh, wow. Uh, she did pass away in July of 74. And despite the success of the shows, the album, as with her two previous albums, was not a hit, unfortunately. And then we got uh, Cool and the Gang, mm -hmm. Wild and Peaceful. We don't have a date on this. But this was September 73. It's their fourth studio album and sixth album of new material. It's their commercial breakthrough album. It was hugely successful on the Billboard R&B chart. It reached number six, and it was on the charts for 36 weeks. Wow. It reached number 33 on the pop charts, and it made making it the band's first entry in the charts top 40. But you may remember some of these songs, um, and it spawned the band's first three top 10 singles, Funky Stuff, I don't know that one, but Jungle Boogie. Mm-hmm. It went to number two on the R&B charts and Hollywood Swinging. So the only one I know is Jungle Boogie. Mm. Famously, I think, used by Quentin Tarantino in Reservoir Dogs. I think that's one of the songs. And the last two singles, Jungle Boogie and Hollywood Swinging, uh, sold over a million copies and were certified gold. Wow. And the album was also certified gold. And then the next one is September 22nd, 73. We got Marie Osmond. <laughs> Got some good ones here, if you want to check out. Paper Roses. This is her debut studio album. And it was the first of three MGM Kolob albums uh, Osmond would record as a solo artist. Now, the album's name came from its title track, and it was a cover of Anita Bryant's top 10 hit from 1960. But Marie Osmond's version reached number one on the Billboard Country Chart and number five on Billboard Hot 100. Marie Osmond became the first female country singer to have a number one hit with her debut single since Connie Smith in 1964. Album peaked at number one on the country charts and uh, 
Number 59 on Billboard 200. So there we go. Those are albums that are turning 50. So as you can see, there was no big albums right. <laughs> that came out. Okay, so we have albums turning 40, and also I have a couple, uh, let's see here. I have one news story, which is very, uh, very legendary, I'd say. Okay. September 18th, and we're talking 1983, Kiss shows their faces for the first time on MTV to promote their new album, Lick It Up. Now, it wasn't the, it was Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, but it was not Ace, Ace Freely or Peter Chris. From what I understand, Peter Chris showed his face earlier mm-hmm. than this. They were no longer in the band, of course. So you got Vinnie Vincent and Eric Carr, and they showed them with the makeup, and then they were, they were all sitting there, and then they revealed each person one by one, and they showed what they looked like. <laughs> Interesting. That was, a, I guess, a big thing. Because on the album Lick It Up, I think it's the first time that we see them without their makeup. Right. And then we have some albums here. Uh, September 12th, we got UB40, Labor of Love. It's the fourth studio album. They were a British reggae band. And it's their first album of cover versions. And this album is most notable because it included the song Red Red Wine, which was a big hit. It was a number one single, and it also includes three UK top 20 hits, Please Don't Make Me Cry, Many Rivers to Cross, and Cherry Oh Baby. Is that, is that the, a Neil Diamond? Is that the Cherry? Oh, yeah. Okay. Is that the one? The Four Seasons? Or... Baby. Cherry. Cherry Baby. Yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah. Very good. <laughs> So the album reached number one in the UK and only number 39 in the US. But I do remember this song being played over and over and over, Red Red Wine. And it uh, re-entered the Billboard 200 in 1988, peaked at number 14. Actually, let me see here. I guess it just took a a while for it to catch on in the US. Hmm. So maybe that's when I heard the song, 88, not 81. Who knows? Might have heard him heard it, you know, counting down the hits with Casey Kasem. I might have, yeah. <laughs> this is Casey Kasem. Gooby <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> doo. Okay, September fifteenth. Now this is an album I actually still own. Still own, or did you rebuy it? I rebought it. Ah, you got me. Ah. Huey Lewis and the News mm. Sports. Okay, it's their third album. It reached number one on the Billboard two hundred. Well, it says it reached number, yeah, uh, that was 1984, it reached number one. We're talking 83 here. But it was on the charts. Are you sitting down? If you hear a growling, that's my stomach. (laughs) Jeremy, I have not eaten anything except coffee this morning. We ate the grounds. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So this was on the charts for 160 weeks. Wow. 100, what, that? That's like three years. Yeah. Right? Uh, It ranked number two on Billboard year-end album chart for 84. It spawned four top ten hits with Heart and Soul, The Heart of Rock and Roll. Mm -hmm. And other notable songs are If This Is It and I Want a New Drug, both peaking at number six. Wow. So I had some good songs on there. Huey Lewis and the News are like... um, People might be ashamed to say they like them, but they're a really 
tight band. They're, They're really a good band. Oh yeah. I wouldn't be ashamed to say I like them. Yeah. I can hear your stomach in, yeah. in my headphones. <laughs> <laughs> We're not having an earthquake. I thought it was here. a car outside at first, but now I can like, oh. Okay, right. we'll just say it's a car then. There you go. It's a car outside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we got September 16th with the Motels, Little Robbers. This was the fourth studio album by new wave band, the Motels. And uh, it features the hit song Suddenly Last Summer, which hit number one. It uh, became the band's second top 10 hit in the U.S. That was my stomach, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first top 10 hit was Only the Lonely, which was from the previous oh. album. I know both of those songs. Yeah. You said the motels. I'm like, I don't think I know them. And then you said those two songs. I'm like, oh, I guess I know them. <laughs> they were a two-hit wonder. There you go. If there's such a thing. Okay, and before we get into the, the history of music videos and uh, our movie review, we got one more here. Decided to um, talk about albums that are turning 30. And I have two, two notable albums. I'm trying to think. Because we're talking like 93 here. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd guess like, never mind. Get close. <laughs> uh. Okay, so I have two albums that are turning 30. And September 14th, 1993 is Counting Crows. Okay. August and Everything After. And it's the debut of Counting Crows. I love this album. And as I recall, my girlfriend at the time, it was now my wife, her brother got this CD and he hated it. <laughs> and I think he basically, or my wife, you know, gave it to me. Mm -hmm. And I listened to it over and over. It's produced by T-Bone Burnett. He's done a lot of good work. Four singles were released from the album. And the highest charting, of course, was Mr. Jones. And, and me? Yeah. <laughs> now, it peaked at number five. I thought that would be like a number one. The album itself was received by critics, uh, was well received by critics. It's gone multi-platinum several countries, including the U.S., where it sold over 7 million copies. And, okay, the album peaked at number four on the Billboard 200. Okay. And then the other one is on September 21st, 93, 1993, is Nirvana in Utero. Ah, right band, wrong yeah. album. <laughs> so it's the third and final studio album from Nirvana. Okay. So after breaking into mainstream, of course, with their second album, Nevermind, they hired Steve Al... Al how do you say it? Albi Albini? Yeah. Steve Albini to record In Utero. Seeking a more complex, abrasive sound that was also reminiscent of their debut album, Bleach, mm -hmm. in 1989. And although frontman and lyricist Kurt Cobain claimed that the album was very impersonal, many of its songs contain heavy allusions to his personal life and struggles, expressing feelings of angst that were common with Nevermind and, of course, Nirvana. So those are two monumental... I'm hoping to give those a listen around the anniversary dates because I love both. I love Nirvana. Mm -hmm. and that was I, a good album, too. Yeah. So that does it for our anniversary albums. And we're going to get into uh, the history of music videos.
<laughs> so Jeremy, when do you think the first music video would have? Well, you you told me about this, so oh, did be I? Cheating? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I would have if you didn't tell me. I would have said the mid eighties. Well, I kinda, but believe it or not, it was in eighteen ninety four. Yeah. Okay. So in eighteen ninety four, sheet music publishers Edward B. Marks and Joe Stern hired electrician George Thomas and various artists to promote sales of their song, The Little Lost Child. Now, it actually says, using a magic lantern, (laughs) Thomas projected a series of still images on a screen simultaneous to live performances. So this would become a popular form of entertainment known as the illustrated song, the first step towards the music video. What if they were flipping like one of those little flip books as song as the music was playing? Yeah. (laughs) So we're not talking about music TV, of course, because there was no TV back then. Then we go into the arrival of what they called talkies, which they called, you know, after silent movies when, you know, you could hear people's voices. And then Vitaphone shorts, they were produced by Warner Brothers, featured bands, vocalists, and dancers. Uh, Animation artist Max Fletcher introduced a series of sing-along short cartoons called Screen Songs which invited audiences to sing along to popular songs. And this is before your time, Jeremy, by following the bouncing ball. Mm-hmm. Which I've is, seen those cartoons. Which is similar to the modern karaoke machine. Yes. And then the early animated films by Walt Disney, such as Silly Symphonies, Shorts, and especially Fantasia, featured several interpretations of classical pieces were built all around music. The Warner Brothers cartoons, even today billed as Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies, were initially fashioned around specific songs from upcoming Warner Brother musical film. And then uh, blues singer Bessie Smith, she appeared in a two-reel film called St. Louis Blues, featuring a dramatized performance of her hit song. Uh, numerous other musicians appeared in short musical subjects during this period, and this is the 1930s we're talking So then we go up to the uh, musicals of the 50s. Musical films were another important precursor to a music video. Several well-known music videos have imitated the style of classic Hollywood musicals from the 1930s to 50s. And one of the best-known examples is Madonna with her 1985 video for Material Girl which was closely modeled on Jack Cole's staging of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend from the film Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And then several Michael Jackson's videos show the unmistakable influence of the dance sequence of the dance sequences in classic Hollywood musicals, mm-hmm. including Thriller and Martin Scorsese directed Bad, which was influenced by the stylized dance fights in the film version of West Side Story. Maybe Elvis movies too, you know, yeah. the fights. Now, here's a name that came up when we were doing the Buddy Holly podcast. One of the people that were in the plane that went down is the Big Bopper. Yep. Right? He was the first to coin the phrase music video in 1959. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then this is weird because Tony Bennett just passed away and i have a little paragraph here about tony so in tony bennett's autobiography uh he claims to have created the first music video 
when he was filmed walking along the Serpentine in Hyde Park, London, with the resulting clip being set to his recording of the song Stranger in Paradise. The clip was sent to UK and US television stations and aired on shows including Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Oh, great. So was that, that could have been the first official music video. It was Tony Bennett. Now, in 1961, uh, for the Canadian-produced show Sing Along Jubilee, Manny Pitson began pre-recording the music audio. He went on location and taped various visuals with the musicians lip-syncing, then edited the audio and video together. And most music numbers were taped in-studio on stage, and the location shoot videos were to add variety. But in 1964, Kenny Anger's experimental short film Scorpio Rising used popular songs instead of dialogue. On January 1st, 1964, Johnny Stewart and Stanley Dorfman created the British chart music television series Top of the Pops, Hmm. which they produced in tandem and directed in weekly rotation until the 1970s. Now, this was the first, I think, where they were really getting into promoting a band or a song with a video. The show's format created demand for frequent studio appearances by renowned British and American artists at short notice as the charts came out on Tuesday mornings and the show was taped live on Thursdays. So besides the artist's busy touring schedules and subsequent requests from broadcasters in Europe and America to showcase popular British acts, they were ultimately prompted to produce pre-recorded films referred to as promotional videos. So it was like time constraint. There was no way they could get these people into the studio. But I don't know how they were producing video that quickly, too. Right. And these videos served as substitutes for live performances by the artists. And uh, during the early stages of the show's debut in 1964, when alternative footage was unavailable... Dorfman and Stewart resorted to capturing footage of the enthusiastic audience dancing. So they added that in, I guess, too, to make it look like it was live. So by the 1970s, Top of the Pops had an average weekly viewership of 12,500,000 people. It had solidified its status as the premier international platform for artists launching new records at the time. So by like 1966, you know, the the Stones were doing promotional clips for their singles. Like, have you seen your mother uh, standing in the shadow? In 1966, Nancy Sinatra filmed a clip for her song, These Boots Are Made For Walking. And then uh, 72 to 73, Alice Cooper was in a bunch of promotional films for Elected, Hello, Hooray, No More Mr. Nice Guy. This was pre-bat head-biting, right? No, that was Ozzy. Ah. Yeah. Ah, ah, yeah. And then we got, uh, you know, of course, David Bowie. He was very uh, creative, very, you know, I guess, cutting edge with everything he did. So, of course, he, he got into doing video for his songs. We're talking 1972, 73. So, this was a... Stepping stone for the music video is the promotional video. So then in, in between 74 and 80, 
We see other shows coming around to promote singers and bands like the Australian TV show Countdown and Sounds. They both premiered in 1974. So as the show gained popularity, uh, Countdown, talent coordinator Ian Molly Meldrum, producer Michael Shrimpton, they quickly realized that film clips were becoming an important new commodity in music marketing. Despite the show's minuscule budget, uh, Countdown's original director, Paul Drain, was able to create several memorable music videos, especially for the show, including the classic film clips for ACDC, ACDC's hits, It's a Long Way to the Top If You Want to Rock and Roll, and Jailbreak. And then, after relocating to the UK in the mid-1970s, Mulcahy made successful promo films for several noted British pop acts. And then before we get to MTV, one more thing. Uh, in 1980, the music video to David Bowie's Ashes to Ashes became the most expensive ever made. It had a production cost of $582,000. Wow. That was more than a lot of movies. Yeah. It's equivalent to over $2 million in today's you know money. And it was the first music video to have a production cost over $500,000. Wow. So that brings us up to MTV on Saturday, August 1st, 1981 at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time. MTV was launched with the words, Ladies and Gentlemen, Rock and Roll, spoken by John Lack and played over footage of the first space shuttle launch countdown of Columbia, which took place earlier that year, and the launch of Apollo 11. And the words were followed by the original MTV theme song, a rock tune composed by Jonathan Ellis, Elias, and John Peterson, playing over the U.S. flag, changing the MTV's logo into different colors and, you know, textures. Mm-hmm. So MTV producers Alan Goodman and Fred Siebert used this public domain footage as a concept. Siebert said that they had originally planned to use Neil Armstrong's one small step quote, but lawyers said that Armstrong owned his name and likeness and that he had refused. So the quote was replaced with a beeping sound. <laughs> now, we talked about Russell McKay. That's the guy that moved to UK. He was doing, he was working for Countdown TV. Okay. Believe it or not, the one video that he cre- helped create was the first video that MTV ever showed. So there's your link between that first show before MTV, mm-hmm. the same guy that was had pretty much not invented, but knew what he was doing as far as promoting bands. Uh, it was the Buggles video killed the radio star. Now I didn't. This is something I didn't know is that MTV, when it launched, was only available in homes in New Jersey. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Now the second video shown was Pat Benatar's "You Better Run." In case anyone wants to know. I was always curious, because you always know about the Buggles, but what was number two? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, now I know. Now, the screen would occasionally go black because an MTV employee had to insert a tape into a VCR. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Hopefully his cell phone didn't ring and distract him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, the studio is located in New York. And it was uplinked to a satellite to another facility, I guess. Also served as an uplink for sister networks, Nickelodeon, the movie channel. And then within two months, record stores were selling music. Local radio stations were not playing. 
which is incredible, such as Men at Work, Bow Wow Wow, and Human League, where people would, have, would maybe not have heard of them except for their videos. Now, MTV also sparked the second British invasion by playing existing videos by British acts who had used that format as promotion. So old videos, and they were being now promoted by MTV. Mm -hmm. MTV targeted an audience of ages 12 to 34. However, its self-conducted research shows that over 50% of its audience was 12 to 24, and that this group watched for an average of 30 minutes to two hours a day. Now, I was one who watched over two hours. I remember, you know, if I was in school, coming home and just, I had to watch MTV. Mm-hmm. I was like obsessed with it. So I put my dad through some, you know, watching, you <laughs> know, poison videos or whatever was on <laughs> at the time. Um, Cornholio. <laughs> I don't know when that came on, but I know that was a huge hit TV series for them. Probably early 90s, late 80s, maybe. Beavis and Butthead. Oh, yeah. I don't know. So, because the most music videos were intended to promote the artist, it was very rare to not see the artist in the video. David Bowie had a lot of opinions on the music videos because in the early 80s, uh, the videos also began to include political and social themes. In a 1983 interview, Bowie spoke about the importance of using music videos in addressing social issues. He said, let's try to use the video format as a platform for some kind of social observation and not just waste it on trotting out and trying to enhance the public image of the singer involved. That's the way he felt. And in 1983, uh, one of the most successful, influential, and iconic music videos of all time was released. And it was the nearly 14-minute-long video for Michael Jackson's song Thriller. And it was directed by John Landis. The video set new standards for production, having cost $800,000 to film. And that's an iconic video. Yeah. So then after, you know, MTV was launched, uh, we had Friday Night Videos in 83. On March 5th, 1983 country music television was launched much music video channel this was in canada was 1984 and in 1984 mtv launched the mtv music video awards later to be known as the vmas and the inaugural event rewarded the beatles and david bowie with the video vanguard award for their work in pioneering the music video in 1985 um MTV's Viacom launched the channel VH1, which I also watched then, Mm -hmm. uh, featured softer music and meant to cater to slightly older baby boomer demographic. And they had the pop-up videos. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, In 87, we had MTV Europe and MTV Asia in 91. And then in 88, we had the show... Yo MTV Raps was introduced, and the show helped bring hip-hop music to mass audience for the first time. In 92, we had The Real World, so MTV starts branching out into reality TV. Mm-hmm. Now, most people think that this was the first reality show, and it's not. <laughs> well, there weren't really any reality shows, not many before this, but believe it or not, in 1973... 
there was a show called An American Family. Mm. I think it was 10 episodes and it just followed people around like their daily, you know, daily life. But that was the first reality show. Yeah. Now from 95 to 2000, MTV played 36.5 fewer music videos. This is when they stopped, <laughs> started to stop playing music videos. Uh, they still play videos. They're called Epic Awesome <laughs> videos, which I watch sometimes, but people think that they don't play video, you know, music videos at all, but they still do. I think over the last couple of years, they might have picked up a little bit more. I almost felt like they were that kind of weird gray area where they tried to appeal to, like, the young adult, but still stay consistent to what their original values were meant to be. Mm -hmm. Because I remember, I mean, I mentioned Beavis and Butthead jokingly, but they also did that, like, celebrity deathmatch stuff, which was huge. Oh, yeah. That was, like, the late 90s. But they were in that, just that gray area of, you know, trying to be edgy, I think, mm-hmm. for like a TV show, but still hold true to their values. And it was it was hard to kind of compromise and do both. Yeah, I think they were just trying to then be a, just a TV network, like mm-hmm. like Fox or something, you know, that would just show a variety of Well, yeah, because they started doing their own news segments and stuff like that, too. Yeah. Eventually. I still think there should be... A music channel that everybody gets and with the 24 hour and also music news and like just Tony Bennett passing yesterday. I, actually, they were, that's what amazed me when I put that, Jeremy was here when I put the uh, video uh, MTV on mm-hmm. and they were, I think it was last night and they were playing uh, Tony Bennett videos. Yeah. Because they, they stopped doing that. They stopped like being aware of what was going on in music. I just don't know why there isn't, there's so many different channels and why, I mean, maybe there are, maybe I just don't get well, I know the channel. I we, know there was access. We uh, have satellite TV. We have all kinds of music channels. Okay. Like the 800s or 900s. Yeah. They play music nonstop. There's no videos. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, songs, but there's no commercials or anything. Well, for a little while I got this channel. I think it was called uh, Access. I think it's AXS. Mm-hmm. And they were playing, uh, like old concerts and I was excited because it was a true music channel and then it disappeared. Yeah. Oh. I th- I think it's still around, but for some reason I don't get it anymore. Okay. We get that one. There's a lot of concerts on. I think what ha- I think MTV might've even taken over and then freaking ruined that channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause they do a lot of like behind the music and you know, stories about yeah. old, not old, but former singers or yeah. groups or whatever. I think for me, I know with music, how it's changed over time, my personal tastes aren't towards like rap and hip hop. And, you know, if it's half that and half what I like, then it's, it was more appealing to me when MTV first came out. Right. I think. Right. I have to say, I like run DMC and I like, it's not that I don't like, I just don't like the, I don't know. I'm not a prude, but I don't like the, you know, people twerking and just the, they're still over-sexualized videos, and I I just want good music to listen to. Right. You know? Yep. So, next up, we're going to get into the movie yep. we just watched called Tape Heads. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, now we're going to talk about this movie that I'm, maybe you haven't heard of. It's from... It was released October 21st, 1988. So it's going to turn 35 years old. Called Tape Heads. And with a Z, right? No. That's oh, with an S. Okay. Yeah. This was uh, written and directed by Bill Fishman. Um, now... Bill Fishman, believe it or not, he probably got inspiration because he had directed a ton of music videos. Um, he directed the Monkees, Heart and Soul, when they were making their comeback. Uh, some Ramones video, like Pet Cemetery. Okay. And also The Offspring. Uh, I didn't recognize his song, Turning Into You. He directed their music video. Okay. Now that movie's two main stars are John Cusack as Ivan and Tim Robbins as Josh. Mm -hmm. Now, this movie lost a ton of money for the, um, the movie company. And the movie cost $3 million mm -hmm. in 1988 to make. It's a lot. And I don't know, did it look like a $3 million no. movie? No, it didn't. The movie made $343,000. So think about it. It lost like over two and a half million dollars yeah. on this movie. Yeah. Now the movie, it's a 93 minutes long. It was also produced by Michael Nesmith, who is from the Monkees. He actually appears in the movie briefly as a bottled water delivery man. <laughs> this movie has a lot of cameos in it. Um... But they're very brief. That's like we see Weird Al. He's walking out of a building, and then he's gone. But you know that hey, that's Weird Al. Yeah, he pushes him out of the way yeah. or something. And uh, we see Ted Nugent. Yeah. Uh, who else do we see? The guy at the end, Jello. Yeah, Jello Biafra's in it. There you go. Uh, we got Don Cornelius. He's uh, his name is Mo Fuzz. <laughs> We've got Martha Quinn, who we just talked about. She was, uh, you know, on MTV as a VJ. Oh, the one person um, I didn't recognize and I forgot about is Bob Goldthwait. Oh. And that's why when we saw the credits, I said Jack Cheese. He went by the name Jack Cheese. <laughs> but his name in the movie was Don. Okay. He was in one of the Police Academy movies. He was hilarious. Or maybe multiple Police Academy movies. And then we had a football player, um, Lyle Alzado. That's who the football uh -huh. player was. I don't know who that is. He looked familiar, but... And then the band Fishbone, they do the music for the movie, but they're also in the movie. So the plot of the movie, um, Ivan and Josh, they lose their jobs as security guards. Mm -hmm. This was a strange movie. I wouldn't say it was bad. You know? I wouldn't watch it again. Yeah, I wouldn't watch it again. I wouldn't go out of my way to see it again, unfortunately. Yeah. I wouldn't say it was bad, but it wasn't, like, great either. So they're working as security guards, and they, I don't know, they decide to have a party. They're kind of... Where they work. Yeah, where <laughs> they work. Which is under, like, surveillance. They've got all these cameras, but somehow they know how to, like, switch the wires. Well, it reminded me, a friend of mine and I, we work... I'm not going to say the company, but we were security guards. Uh -huh. And it was the, like, midnight shift. 
And there was only one other guy in the building. It was a huge building, office building, like three floors. And we just had to go around turning keys just so they know. But I don't think they had cameras. We had cameras that we could look at, but I don't think they were looking at us. Right. But the one night our friends came over and we were playing Frisbee in the parking lot. We, I don't know, we went into the cafeteria and we're trying to find food. <laughs> and yeah, so it wasn't, it was only maybe four friends, but you know, it wasn't like they were, this party was like, I don't know. <laughs> Hundreds many, of people, it seemed like. <laughs> yeah. So they eventually get fired and you'll see like in, when they're security guard and the party's going on, they turn the cameras on and, and the, uh, Tim Robbins character, Josh, he's kind of doing some effects on the, you know, the camera. Like, so you kind of get, uh, that's a precursor to them wanting to do music videos. Mm -hmm. Cause that's what they, I guess that's what he wants to do. So then they, they pack up their stuff. They have this little Volkswagen out and it's, it's a weird, it's not a bug, but it's almost like a Jeep looking like a convertible yeah and they have all their belongings in there and i don't know if it says where they go go to like what state it's a generic place yeah they're driving with a parking ticket on the uh, the wipers (laughs) yeah the movie starts out they have like one parking ticket and then by the end of the movie there's like uh like 50 parking tickets under the wiper they go to rent this building there's a girl already there which they find out her father owns the building i think Mm -hmm. they happen to be ivan happens to be watching tv and he sees this chicken commercial (laughs) and it's really bad the guy's in a chicken suit so that's what kind of starts them trying to make money to do music videos because they they do a new video with him and the guy's doing a rap and it's it's (laughs) it's more elaborate the chicken video, it's um, Belinda challenges him. She's like, I bet you can't do better. And he's like, I bet you I can. And then they make it a more upscaled chicken video. You don't ever find out, though, like what they got paid from this video. You just gather that it was successful because there's a couple of buckets of chicken that yeah. they're eating and they're like celebrating. Mm-hmm. But they're still looking for more jobs. And then that's when they he's getting booted out of every every which place he tries to go to to pitch what they do that's when nugent kicks him out that's weird out (laughs) yeah and they out of the way then they they go into this guy's office and jeremy mentioned that that the guy doesn't seem to have he wants them to do it um for free he says on spec which is like pro bono and it's a band like a new wave band maybe and the video looks like a normal video like josh Josh goes up on like the scaffolding uh-huh. and starts pouring paint on them and pretty soon there's explosives and glitter. Yeah. <laughs> Buckets of glitter. And the guy is like, no, this isn't any good. <laughs> but he gives them another chance. The movie's just it's it's kind of cohesive, you know, they're they're trying to make this work. But there's some weird stuff like they go to the hospital. There's a guy there who's giving his last will and testament. Yeah, like nothing ever came of that. Yeah. It was just weird. You get this like weekend at Bernie's scene. <laughs> well, the guy, um, Ivan's trying to 
he's yelling at him to the guy's like i'm not an actor and then he, the guy probably has a heart attack or something and and dies in the bed and they're then they're filming him trying to make his mouth talk like a weekend at bernie's and then they go on to they make a video where josh has to operate a crane and ivan asked if there's any instruction manuals well even before that they did the funeral one and okay. the ball oh yeah yeah rich yes. the rich person's house then <laughs> yeah they go to a party at this is the thing we there's this rich person who it's not very clear what's going on in the beginning until at the end you kind of figure it out it's weird because they're there to video the party right but then there's this tape but i remember there's a girl there that puts the tape into josh's like satchel or whatever yeah like an older so i think she's trying to frame this guy and we find out later that he is he's a politician yeah and i wouldn't say it's anything really bad except the you know maybe he's being whipped or he's you know so the whole then it starts to revolve around this tape right they bumped Uh, into that girl at the party too sorry i didn't mean to cut you off because she's kind of important there's like three different things happening at once because they're trying mm-hmm. to do the second filming. Mm-hmm. The guy had said, we need more tits and ass. Yeah. So that there's a party and she, he's like feeling up this girl. They're trying to get shots of her. Well, she loses a contact. Yeah. He bumps into her and but he's it's trying a distra- to find it. Yeah. To me, they, that was a distraction mm-hmm. so that they could film her ass and her yeah. chest. Yeah. But then they start talking, hit it off or whatever. And next thing you know... She's in on trying to blackmail the politician. Mm-hmm. And that's how they get the gig at that with the crane that you were alluding to. Yeah. Through her. And that kind of goes awry, but kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so eventually they find success because they mix a funeral that they filmed and didn't get paid for with the audio from the video they messed up, you know, with the crane. The band dies. Oh, yeah. The band dies. <laughs> The building catches on fire. So they're like, what? Oh, oh no, a satellite. Yeah, they got like shot at or something. No, a satellite fell into the, it was the Greek theater. Yeah. And kills them. Yeah. This was after. But anyway, they, this band, they use, somehow the audio gets mixed with the funeral and it becomes a, like a a great music video. (laughs) Martha Quinn is talking about it and they, they end up going, winning awards but in the midst of all this is this red tape mm-hmm. that they're looking for. Now, Sam Moore is in it and uh, Junior Walker. They are the, what was the band's name? So, the M- M- Madundo, Manundo, Mundo? No, not Menudo. Oh. <laughs> they kept saying that. The Swanky Moes. The Swanky Moes, that's right. <laughs> Ivan's obsessed with this band, the Swanky Moes. We kind of see it's it's... Sam Moore and um, Junior Walker. Junior Walker. We kind of see them in the very beginning of the movie on TV. That where they, I guess they had success early on. And I don't know the the movie's kind of a mishmash of it's, it's all over the place. Yeah, John Cusack and Tim Robbins are very young because it's 1988. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a good one-off watch. You know, we saw it and mm-hmm. something uh, different. The end reminded me there's they're they're at what's supposed to be a Menudo, which was one of the first boy bands concert. 
I didn't understand. They pull up in a limo, and I think it's Josh is talking to him through the window, saying he's gonna he wants to promote them or something. I didn't understand that whole thing that he needed their green cards, and pretty soon Menudo's not on the billboard. They re, they put up their uh, the swanky modes and maybe Menudo or something like that, right. possibly Menudo. So we get a whole song by Sam Moore and Junior Walker. Which we didn't really need, you know. Yeah. And there's, they're still looking for the tape. At first, I thought they were FBI, but they were actually uh, henchmen or hitmen for this politician. And the whole thing, you know, is them getting this tape back. And then at the very end, they, uh, Josh and Ivan, get arrested. What were they arrested for? Showing the tape. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> So they, uh, this is being broadcast, you know, live and they get the tape and they, they put the tape in and it, so it ruins the politician's career. Mm -hmm. But then Josh and Ivan, they get arrested for showing what I think they said, pornography, pornography yeah. uh, broadcasting it. At the end, it tells you, you know, like it would in a true story or something, what, what hap what happens later on or what, what they're up to or whatever, but it said, I don't know how many years they got in prison for showing the tape, but then it said because of the, the parking tickets. I think they were dismissed for the tape, but because of the parking tickets. Yeah. I don't know if they got time. They got, got life or <laughs> yeah. I don't know. They had so many parking tickets. Yeah. So it was an amusing little film. I'd watch it once, you know, if you haven't seen it. So it felt like a, I don't want to say a rip off, but. Like a Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Wayne's mm. World, Bill and Ted's Big Adventure, like yeah, those types of movies. It had that kind of feel to it. Well, at the end, uh, with the them running, hitmen running, running around through the crowd, and coming out on stage at one point yep. and and singing and I, dancing that, that, that was, with yeah. Music. But it reminded me. I don't know if it was the background music or what, but it reminded me of the Blues Brothers. There you go. Like a Blues Brothers chase scene or something. Mm -hmm. so, so that's kind of our review. I'd, 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 I'd give it a 5 out of 10. I mean, yeah, it wasn't horrible, but it wasn't great. Right. And you can, can kind of tell by what the movie made. And it was pretty predictable, too. <laughs> yeah. Now, the only thing, they did catch me off guard. You find out at the end that actually this politician is the father of the oh, girl yeah. they're staying with the whole time. I never saw that coming, but... Yeah, the girl that... Belinda. In, in the warehouse-type building, who says her father owns a building, we find out at the end that the politician is, yeah, yeah. her father. Yeah. So... That was a neat little twist, but... So I guess that does it for us. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And always, if you are a musician and a band you want to send us you know a recent song or for us to listen to review you can find us at no good music podcast at gmail.com thanks for listening and uh turn off the tv and turn up the music You've been listening to No Good Music, intro and exit music by the band 99%. Today's show is produced and edited by Rob J. Lilly and recorded at the Did You Say 7 Studios in Washington, New Jersey. You can find No Good Music on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Pandora, and almost anywhere you listen to podcasts. 